Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. everybody welcome to Howard David live we're going to take a bite of the Big Apple with Michael K the uh, television voice of the Yankees and the host of the Michael K show with uh, Donald Greck and Peter Rosenberg on uh, ESPN New York Michael these days uh, particularly in New York the, a day doesn't go by when something interesting happens with all the professional teams and and all the things that are going on in the city uh, and right now, we're, we're, we're at a crossroads. We've got the NBA going on right now. The Giants are looking for a GM and a coach. The Jets are planning uh, for whatever they're going to do in the offseason. But I wanted to kick it off with, uh, with the Knicks. They're a team, and I'm trying to figure out, maybe you can help me out. Are they a team that's trying to build for now, or are they building for the future? What do you see? Well, I think they're half pregnant. I think they're doing both of those things. And it's a difficult uh, hill to climb. Uh, I think they thought they were going to be better than this because their record right now is about the same as it was last year. Uh, then they had that big finish where they won 14 out of 18. Uh, but, you know, they, they had a lot of money to spend last year. They were building off Julius Randle being all NBA, and uh, he's just come down to earth. Derek Rose is hurt. Kemba Walker has been uh, unable to stay healthy, and also he was benched for a while. So it, it, it's a team in transition that has some of the pieces there for when they're going to get really good. But they still don't have that number one. If they thought that Julius Trandall was that guy, they're wrong. Uh, I think at best he's a bad number two or a great number three. But they still they still need to find that, and then they have they have not done that yet. Would you say that Julius Randle was an all star or a superstar? And there's a difference. He's not a superstar, no. Uh, I, I think for the Knicks, he's their best player. And in New York, sometimes we build things up bigger than they might be. So I think in New York last year, he was looked at as a superstar. You know, he'd go to the, the line after being fouled in the crowd at the Garden, was chanting MVP. Uh, he had no chance at that. I think he's a nice player. Uh, he's an all-star player some, some years, not every year, but he's, he's not a superstar. He cannot carry a team by himself. He uh, got himself into a little hot water with the fans, with the thumbs-down routine, uh, and they started booing him a little bit. But then in recent days, he hasn't been in the post-game press conference for six of the last seven games. So do you think he's at war with the media? I don't think he likes the media pointing out that he's not the great player that, you know, he was, you know, kind of made out to be last year. Uh, I can't tell for sure, but he has not been made available in seven of the last eight um, games. Uh, I think it's a, it's a war he can't win. I think he's upset with the fans as well. You know, he stepped to the line a couple of times, Howard, in the last couple of weeks, and the, the crowd chants R.J. Barrett. So uh, love in New York is very, very fleeting. So I think he's got his nose out of joint a little bit. Uh, and uh, I don't know who he's upset at, but you can see he's not as happy as he was last year. He got his big contract extension. Uh, maybe he thought the team was going to build around him. But as I mentioned, I, I just don't think he's that player that he's the number one guy that you could build around but the, yet, when you look at all the franchises in the city, whether it's the Giants or the Jets, the Rangers, the Yankees, the Mets, if the Knicks get on a roll, I mean, I, I can't think of any franchise that draws more attention than the Knicks. And now I know you broadcast the Yankees, and, and they're a big deal in New York, and so are the Mets. And now with the, with the, uh, the hiring of Buck Showalter, uh, they're getting a lot of attention. But would you say if the Knicks win a championship – it would be bigger than any other franchise, or am I fishing here? I don't know if it would be bigger, but I will tell you this, Howard. Anytime we talk about the Knicks on our show, anytime, the phones light up, and they could light up for six straight hours. So there, there's a fan base there that's starving. You know, they haven't been to an NBA final in, in over 20 years. So uh, it's just a team that, that's been bad, and, and the fan base is starving, and I think – 
you know, last year they, they, they looked at what happened where they were the fourth seed and thought that, well, the next step was a championship. And I'd say that they're several, several years away from even thinking about a championship. They've got to get that big guy, whether it comes in a trade or a draft or a free agent signing, they've got to get that guy. They're a very, very popular team. But I will tell you this, Howard, one thing that I've noticed this year, the Garden is not sold out for every Nick game. So I don't know if that's because of the pandemic or because they're not as entertaining as they were. But uh, both the Knicks and the Rangers are not selling out every game, which used to be a daily occurrence over the last 10, 15 years. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the Rangers, Michael, because I've been a Ranger fan since I'm a kid. And I used to remember going to the old Garden on 49th Street with a bunch of friends of mine when we were in high school. And we'd sit way up in the rafters because we can get in there for 50 cents. Uh, But, you know, to to, to me, the the Rangers have always been a big deal in the city, but yet... They're not, I, I mean, would you say on an average week, I mean, except, except for LaGreca, who's, who's a big Ranger guy and broadcast Ranger games, uh, how much attention do you get from the Rangers, from, from callers? Not many, not much. I mean, when we talk about it, we'll get callers because I think they have a very loyal fan base, but it is very, very segmented. And, you know, these are Ranger fans and that's it. I don't know if you could say there are 3 million Ranger fans in New York. So uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. Uh, when we want guests, and we don't put that many guests on our show, but when we want guests, we have to go out and get them. The Rangers ask us if we want anybody. So they're always looking to promote. They're smart that way. And they're having an unbelievable year. Nobody expected them to be this good. They could actually be a Stanley Cup contender. But uh, it's still just a very small segment of the population that are really diehard Ranger fans. Talk, taking a bite at the Big Apple is Michael Kay, host of the Michael Kay Show on ESPN New York and also – uh, the longtime television voice of the Yankees. When you went to Fordham, uh, and I remember when you were writing for the Daily News, I think it was a post before that, and then the Daily News, but I remember you as a writer for the news, and all of a sudden, bing, one day, he's now broadcasting the Yankees. That was your dream, wasn't it? Since I was nine years old, I grew up about you know, 10, 15 minutes from Yankee Stadium and wanted to be the Yankee announcer. Um, obviously, wanted to be a Yankee player first, but I was very rational as a child and realized... I was afraid of getting hit by a pitch, so that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but, you know, when I went to Fordham, I had a really, really, really thick Bronx accent. And I knew that I was not the type that could go to a small Midwest city and work my way back. I just didn't have it in me. And the whole family is from New York, so I just became a writer. But while I was writing, I was always a, a rain delay guest on the radio. And then when MSG got the rights uh, to the Yankees, I pitched the idea of, like, tomorrow's news today on the post-game show. So that gave me some reps as well and covered the Yankees as a beat writer for about five years. And then uh, Joe Angel and John Sterling uh, hated each other, just couldn't stand each other's guts. And Joe Angel was just up and quit. And the the position next to John was open. And they asked me if I'd like to be considered because they remembered me as the rain delay guest. And they'd see me on MSG. And I said, sure. And there's about 5,000 applicants, I guess. And somehow, someway, I got it. And that was 30 years ago. Well, uh, obviously, you got you're very knowledgeable about the Yankees, among a lot of other topics. But you know, most people don't know unless they research your background that Danny Aiello is your uncle. Yep, my mom's brother. That's it's interesting because I, I might be the only guy that knows that Danny Aiello was in Harlem Nights and The Godfather. Oh yeah, he uh, <laughs> he killed the guy in The Godfather at the bar. He carried him, which is choking him. And at Harlem Nights, the famous line was, take small breaths or tiny breaths. <laughs> that was with uh, Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. Uh, when yeah. he, when he, he, he strangled Frank Pantangeli in the bar. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I'm a movie nut, so I remember all of this kind of stuff. It, it's, uh, it's interesting when, when, you, when you, uh, you look at the, the, the landscape of the city, and now the Giants are trying to, they're trying to hire a general manager. And not necessarily in any order in general manager, then coach. But this may not be the case with the Giants. They may hire a coach first. Well, I, I think that what they've done is they've narrowed the, their um, search down to three guys. So they had uh, nine people interviewed virtually, and then three guys have been brought into the uh, facility and had long interviews. And I think that all three guys have told them coaches that they would be interested in hiring. And two of the names have been Flores and Quinn. So what the Giants did was they did their due diligence and they set up interviews with those coaches. And I think the GM will be chosen by either late today or tomorrow. And then the interviews with the coaches are set up. But the, uh, 
the way it's been uh, explained to me is that the guy who gets the GM job for the Giants won't be the guy who hires the coach. Interesting. Uh, Dan Quinn's name has been bantered about. He's a hot commodity, having experience with the Atlanta Falcons and also a defensive coordinator. Uh, but, but when it comes to the Jets, their, their priorities are a little bit different. And if I said to you that the Jets are closer to relevancy than the Giants, would you agree? It's a loaded question. Uh, I think they have everything in place, but they're, they're only close to relevancy if two things happen. If Zach Wilson is legitimately a great quarterback, he did not show that in the first year, although he got better, and they have a lot of holes to fill with the, their two first-round draft picks and their $53 million in cap space. So how Joe Douglas spends that, can they take a quantum leap? Maybe, but uh, the Giants, if they hire the right coach, and they can get the most out of Daniel Jones and keep him healthy. They do have skilled position players on the offensive end, and they could you know, maybe improve defensively. They could make a leap next year. I think the Jets, it's a slow build. Uh, uh, I think it's an outside shot. They get to a 500 team next year, but they've got to show something. Because one thing I've seen, Howard, with the advent of social media and 24-hour news cycles, there are no five-year plans anymore. There are two-year plans. The last three giant coaches got two years and they got fired it's just a different world and i think in football that's the one place that you can't have it because in football you need time to build something in two years it just doesn't happen yeah and you've got seven jobs out there in the nfl right now and um you you look at i mean a guy like quinn as an example is being bantered about with a number of franchises not just the giants uh as, as it relates to where the jets are and the Giants, too. They each have two picks in the top ten uh, in, in this year's draft. There's not a quarterback out there that you'd say is a franchise quarterback. So I asked Carl, I asked Carl Banks if, if uh, last year was a make-or-break year for Daniel Jones at the beginning of the year, and he adamantly said no. Uh, if I asked Carl Banks the same question now, uh, is he the Giants franchise quarterback? What do you think he would say? I, I think he's saying it's up in the air. Uh, it, first of all, we don't even know if he's healthy. I mean, he was out a long time with that neck injury, so you got to hope that the kid's okay. Uh, and then the new coach and the new GM that comes in, they have no allegiance whatsoever to Daniel Jones. They might want to move on. Now, you have one year at him at a low price, but, you know, the Giants have been mentioned as a possible landing spot for Russell Wilson if the, uh, the Seahawks want to trade him. Uh, so there are guys out there, there are teams out there, um, that might be willing to trade quarterbacks. They're quarterbacks that are better than Daniel Jones that would be available. So if the Giants think they're close, they might go that route. So I think Daniel Jones' future is really up in the air. There's no way you could say he's a quarterback next year. I would say that uh, Russell Wilson's name has been linked with a number of teams in the league. But I had Warren Moon on uh, uh, just the other day who lives in Seattle and is close to the franchise. And I said, do you expect Russell Wilson to be the Seahawks quarterback next year? He said, absolutely which kind of surprised me. I thought with all the talk, there would be some substance. Well, I don't think that the Seahawks want to trade him, Howard. But, I, I mean, we've seen if quarterbacks want to go, they're going to go. I mean, that's just the way the world is. The stars run the sport. So if he decides, I want to get out of here and I want to be done, then they, they probably would, would trade him and, and get a big package for him. But uh, maybe Warren knows that he doesn't want to be traded. But I would think that, you know, that, that team, teams, seems like it's on a rebuild. They just fired the defensive coordinator. It looks like, They'll keep Pete Carroll, but uh, they, they took a big drop this year. I, I'm, I'm not sure if Russell Wilson's going to want to stay. Well, I mentioned there are seven coaching jobs available. I wouldn't be shocked by the end of this week if there was an eighth. And I'm talking about the Dallas Cowboys because I watched Jerry Jones uh, after their loss last weekend. He said he was very high on the roster. Well, who picked the roster? He did. So if he's high on the roster then something else isn't getting it done, and that would mean the coach, right? So uh, I'm just wondering if Michael McCarthy is going to be the coach next year. Uh, uh, Stephen Jones said that he's going to be back, but uh, I'm going to wait and see on this one. I'm not so sure. Well, Stephen Jones could say he's going to be back, but Daddy owns the team, so I think it's what Jerry wants. I think a lot of it has to do, Howard, if Dan Quinn gets offered a job by the Giants and, and, and Jerry Jones thinks, well, I don't want to lose him, um, or even the, if the young offensive coordinator gets offered a job. He, he's 33 years old, but if he gets offered a job and they want to keep him, they might say, you know what, Mike McCarthy, that's it. And, you know, Mike McCarthy didn't do himself any favors with that game 
you know, 14 penalties, which means the team is undisciplined, then running a play with 14 seconds left with a quarterback run that everybody in football said that the line that you have to have is 17 seconds to make that play work without a timeout. And, and to have the game end that way, it's just not a good look for the coach. So I've never, I've never been a great Mike McCarthy fan. You know, with great Green Bay teams, he won one Super Bowl. So um, I just don't think he did a great job coaching the Cowboys. And the Cowboys, it's a tough job because you might be the head coach, but the boss of the whole thing is Jerry Jones. The players want to make Jerry Jones happy. He's the one who decides whether they stay or they go. He's not just an owner. He's a GM. So that's, that's not an easy coaching job. No, you're right, by the way, when you touched on uh, on uh, Quinn uh, possibly being a, uh, a hot commodity around the league. And it, rather than lose him, Jones may want to keep him. The offensive coordinator, Kellen Moore, is also a guy uh, that he might yep. not want to lose. So, I mean, you're right on both counts. Uh, I, look, when it comes to working for Jerry Jones, it's not like working for John Mara. John Mara is a very loyal guy. And you just look down, look at the record. I mean, with the exception, they've had, um, you know, coaches get fired after two years in the last six or seven. That's true. But John Mara cares. And that's something that uh, that you don't see in a lot of owners. Usually when a team is failing, start at the top. But with John Mara, I don't know, I... There's something about that guy that I believe in. Well, I would agree with you, but I think that in the last couple of years, the first time that he's really come, come under heat. Uh, he's coming under heat the way his dad, Wellington, came under heat when the Giants had that long stretch of losing before they hired George Young. And, you know, it's, it's a family affair with the Giants, and they always hire from within. But, Howard, this is the first time um, since George Young that they will hire a GM that has no connection whatsoever to the organization. So... I think John and also Tish realize that they, they've got to change the way they do business because it has not worked. It, I mean, they've averaged 10 losses a year in the last 10 years. And one of those years, they won 11 games. So it shows you how bad they've been. And they have the worst record over the last five years tied with the Jets in the entire NFL. I mean, we're not talking like Jacksonville. We're not talking Detroit. We're talking about the New York Giants and the New York Jets. Worst record in the league over the last five years. It's hard to believe. So something does have to change. I asked um, uh, Jeff Saturday, who was on with me a couple of days ago, about uh, the best job of the seven available. And he quickly said the Giants. And I said, well, their quarterback is suspect. Uh, why do you say the Giants? He said the marketplace uh, and the owner. Uh, he said, I, I think that's a great job for somebody. I said, well, what about Chicago that's got a quarterback that uh, might be the best of the quarterbacks from the teams that are looking for a coach? He said, no, he, says, I, I, he thinks the Giants would be the best job out there. Well, the Giants definitely are a Tiffany franchise, and if you could make it in New York, you know, you're going to be remembered forever. And this is, a, this is a team that's not had any success whatsoever since, you know, they won the Super Bowl with Tom Coughlin. So the bottom line is it's a job with a complete upside. But uh, as you can see, what happened with Joe Judge, 38-year-old coach hired, struggled in the second year, he got fired. So it's a good job until it goes wrong. It's only a good job if you do a good job at it. But I know what Jeff means because, I mean, the spoils are there if you get it done being a head coach in New York and, and having a winning team. I don't think Bill Parcells ever looked back after that. His, his entire life was set after winning those two Super Bowls. No doubt. Uh, he's Michael K. taking a bite of the Big Apple with Michael. Uh, let me go to the Nets. Uh, last night in watching the game, uh, something happened during that game that has been written this morning, but I don't think enough is being made of it. David, David Vanderpool, uh, the assistant coach of the Nets, stuck his hand out uh, and deflected a ball back into play, and it was not seen by any of the three officials. I mean, there's three officials there. Nobody saw it? It was amazing. It was, I, and, you know, I was watching it on Yes, and, I, and they didn't even know exactly what happened. And it wasn't until later, so people really took a closer look at that replay that they could see that his hand touched the ball. It should have gone to Washington, uh, the ball. So it, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And I would think that you've got to find that assistant coach a lot of money for doing that. He can't, be, he can't even be that close to the court where he reaches out and he touches the basketball. I mean, you've seen a lot of basketball in your life, and I have as well. I've never seen that. Never seen it. Amazing. <laughs> and they held on to win. No, it was amazing. And, and to, to be honest, I mean, the Nets got away with one last night, and that's okay. You're going to have games like that. But – uh, I, I just couldn't believe my eyes when I was watching it. Uh, I remember going back 
to when I was broadcasting New Jersey Nets basketball. And they, they were relevant when Chuck Daly became the head coach. And I'm sitting in the press room one day, and the Knicks came into town. And talking to Marv Albert, and Marv said, you know, the Nets are playing much better. What happens if the Nets win a championship, Marv says? And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, where would they hold a parade? On New Jersey Turnpike and 16W? And I said, you know what, Marv? One day that bubble of pomposity with the Knicks is going to break. And basically, <laughs> I mean, uh, look, at the Knicks franchise, I was a Knicks fan when I was a kid also. But a couple of things have happened along the way. Most notably is they haven't won a championship since Clyde Willis and the boys won it in 73. It's, it's, un, it's an unbelievable run. It's an unbelievable run. Of I mean, you know, they, they had a shot with Riley. They had a shot with Van Gundy. Uh, but it's been it's just been successful. It really has. Coaching changes. And, and I give Dolan credit. I mean, everybody blames Dolan. He does want to win. Sometimes his allegiance is misplaced when, you know, he stayed with Isaiah Thomas too long. But he spent all that money bringing in Phil Jackson. And if you didn't know better, Howard, you would think that Phil Jackson was a saboteur. Uh, I mean, the moves that he made were so mind-bogglingly bad and still remain bad to this day uh, that you can't believe that somebody of that basketball IQ could have done that poorly at that job. But they got rid of him. They probably got rid of him too late after the draft when he was able to select Kevin Knox. So uh, they're climbing out of it now. Uh, Leon Rose has made some good moves, some bad ones as well. But at least they have a good coach in place in Tom Thibodeau. So um, I just don't know if, if they're real close as I mentioned at the start of this, they've got to get themselves a star, and they don't have one yet. The only pro- the only problem I have with Thibodeau, he complains an awful lot to the officials, and Julius Randle does as well. I mean, after a while, officials turn a deaf ear, and, and, and is he the biggest complainer in the league? Obviously, I don't know that. I mean, I don't watch every single game. I just noticed that, that Thibodeau complains an awful lot, and I, I wish that he would, he, he would kind of back off a little bit. I, I wonder if you were monitoring my show yesterday. I opened the show saying the whole team complained. Every single call is wrong. Every one. And even uh, uh, Clyde Frazier and Mike Breen said on the broadcast, these are clear fouls. What are they arguing about? And I'm going to tell you why that matters. Because in the two-minute report that the NBA released yesterday, there were two clear calls that were wrong against the Knicks. Right. Uh, Carl Anthony Towns driving to the basket, and then the almost steal. They should have gone the Knicks' way. But what official is going to give the Knicks the benefit of the doubt when they complain on every single play? It's wrong. It's dumb. LeBron James can complain. Michael Jordan can complain. And they don't even complain nearly as much as Julius Randle and Taj Gibson. And guys that shouldn't be complaining, take the call and move on. And if it's an egregiously bad call, okay, you can make yourself heard. But to complain on every single call, and, and Thibodeau on the sidelines, I agree with you, it looks like he's just sucked on a lemon. He always has that like, bewildered look on his face <laughs> as if the official doesn't know what they're doing. But then in the last two-minute report, when you have two major calls go against you, you have nobody to blame but yourself, and you're constant complaining. Look, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. When I first started doing the NBA with the Nets, uh, I, I wondered on a couple of calls, and my partner was Michael Corrin. I said, what, so how do you evaluate officiating? And he said, officials will give the benefit of the doubt to the stars. And I said, really? And I said, but Michael, a foul is a foul, right? He goes, eh, that, that's, that's logic. But the reality is that they do favor superstars. Absolutely. And they're still not superstars, so they shouldn't be complaining. And I, and I think human nature being what it is, if you give somebody a hard time, they are not giving you the call. They're just not. And you're supposed to call it right down the middle, as you said, a foul is a foul. No foul is no foul. But if somebody is always, always pleading his case, you've had enough of it. You're going to just think, you know what, they're wrong. Okay, when you look now at the Nets, I want to ask you your opinion about uh, Kyrie Irving. Uh, when, when the verdict came down, he wasn't going to get vaccinated and so on. Uh, the Nets basically said, we don't want a part-time player. And, uh, and uh, the general manager said the same thing. So they stuck to their guns. What changed? What, wh- why did they change their stance? Was it, uh, was it the uh, players uh, going down for the protocol and they were losing people? How did you evaluate that? I think it was a number of things. I, was, I think the surge of Omicron uh, probably changed their mind a little bit because everybody kept going on the COVID protocol list. Um, you were wearing out Kevin Durant and you were wearing out James Harden. Uh, so even if you have an inconsistent team because the guy's only playing on the road, 
they could give those two guys a little bit of a break. Uh, and they're paying the guy anyway. So I, I just think they, they, they didn't want to die on that hill, and their, their ethical uh, nature just went out the window because this team is so far over the luxury tax that obviously they have to win a championship. They're built to win a championship. Their owner, Joe Sy, is paying $75 million just in tax, hmm. not in, in payroll, in tax. So they've got to win a championship. And, you know, Kyrie's a handful. He's just an amazing player, but he's a handful. And I guess they figured after a while with all these injuries and all the fact that, um, you know, Omicron is putting people down every single day, uh, it's better to have them halftime, uh, just just halfway. Uh, I don't know if it makes them look great, especially after they said things so publicly. Uh, but, but what I don't understand is, it, you know, if you're in for a penny, why don't you in for a dollar? Because he could actually play, Howard, yep. in the games in Brooklyn mm-hmm. if they were willing to pay a $5,000 fine per game. So with the games that are remaining, it would cost them $45,000. I just told you what they're paying in taxes. So would it be worth it? I mean, you've already sold your soul. So let the guy play in New York and pay the fine. But uh, you know, I looked into it after that became public, and the NBA told the Nets under no circumstance will you do that. All right, I can't let you go without talking about the Yankees and the Mets. The Mets uh, hire Buck Showalter, uh, and they've made some moves before the, uh, the lockout uh, that looks like they're going to be a better team. Uh, when it comes to the Yankees, uh, they've got issues to deal with in terms of free agents they have to sign. Uh, what what what's your first of all? What, how long do you think the lockout's going to last? That I don't know. I mean, if you ask me, my gut feeling, my gut feeling is I think it's going to at least chew into summer spring training, and, and how much it chews into will decide if they miss any regular season games. So they're not close right now. From everything I've heard, they're not close. They're they're speaking different languages. So that's one thing. Um, as for the Mets, I think they hired the perfect guy. I, I'm a Buck Walt fan. He's going to squeeze every last ounce out of this team. He realizes this is his last chance at the age of 65 uh, to win that elusive championship, although they have made strides by getting a guy like Max Scherzer. I do not believe at this point they are a championship-level team. I believe they could, they could make the playoffs, but we don't even know if Jacob DeGrom is healthy. And until we know that, then you know Max Scherzer, remember, didn't make the last start in the postseason because his uh, shoulder was tired. So we, we don't even know about him. And he's making over $40 million a year. I think they've improved. I think that when the lockout lifts, they'll probably make more improvements, which could move them closer to what they want to be. But at this point, the way the team is, still not uh, a championship team. As for the Yankees, if they decide to run it back, Howard, with last year's team, they will not win a championship either. Uh, they just won't. There are a lot of holes on this team. Uh, they, they need a shortstop. Uh, they need a center fielder. Uh, Aaron Hicks is, is supposedly healthy. But if you look at his track record, he doesn't stay healthy. Uh, and I think they need another pitcher. So uh, there's a lot of heavy lifting that they have to do once this lockout ends. And they don't even have their first baseman signed yet. Are they going to bring back Rizzo? Uh, will they stay with Void? Will they make a trade with Oakland for Olsen? Those are all questions that are still out there. So I think Brian Cashman has to be mobilizing right now with his staff and say, okay, once this lockout ends, this is what we have to do and do it quickly. And that's what's going to be fascinating when the lockout ends, because the lockout is going to end uh, when spring training either starts or is supposed to start or games are supposed to start. So they might have a week to get their team together. And, Howard, there are 300 players that are still unsigned. Mm. So there are a lot of players that don't know where they're going to be, a lot of teams that are not even close to being set. So everything's a work in progress. I don't think there's any favorite right now. The, 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 the greatest favorites that you have are teams that are set. And, there aren't that many teams that are set. The Yankees' wish list also includes a shortstop. Correa from Houston has signed uh, Boros, I believe, as his agent. Is that good news or bad yeah. news for the Yankees, and do they want him? I, I don't think, you know, their two best prospects in their system, and the 10th best prospect of all of baseball was the kid from Jersey that was their first-round pick a couple of years ago, Anthony Volpe. And uh, people think he might be a year away. Um, it's not not 2022, but maybe 2023. You know, you sign Carlos Correa, you're signing him for 10 years, and you're essentially blocking the best prospect you have in your system. Also, I think Correa, you know, once you sign with Scott Boris, Howard, you're not giving a discount to anybody. You're going to get top dollar. So he probably wants $35 million a year since Francisco Lindor gets 34. Uh, if he gets 35, 350 for 10 years, when your two best prospects in your system are shortstops, 
I don't think the Yankees are going to go that route. I mean, I could see the Yankees maybe doing a stopgap measure, bring in an Angelson Simmons, a guy that could play great defense for them. But in terms of Korea, I'd be really surprised if they go to that level. It'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting. Mike, I appreciate your insight. Uh, you stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. You too. He's Michael Kay of uh, ESPN New York, television voice of the Yankees. Does an outstanding job. Uh, I, I wish the lockout were over tomorrow. Because he's right. There's 300 players that, that have not signed contracts. So, <laughs> I... Uh, I wonder. I just wonder, what are you going to do when you've got you've got all those players that you have to sign, and they're not. So we'll see. We'll see. Hello. Hey, it's uh, Dan Horn. How are you, sir? Great, Howard. How are you? I can't complain. Uh, you're getting ready for uh, round two of the NFL playoffs. But before we go to round two, let me go back to round one um, and, and uh, think about the Bengals and their performance uh, against Las Vegas. Uh, it's, it seems to me that, uh, that Joe Burrow continues. I mean, I would like to have him sitting, standing at a dice table and just back every roll because right now he's as hot as they've come. <laughs> <laughs> he has been on a remarkable run. If you look back over his last five games, Howard, Joe Burrow has completed 75% of his passes. He's thrown 13 touchdowns. He has not been intercepted. He is averaging 342 yards per game, and he has a passer rating of 129.9. I don't think it is hyperbole or an exaggeration on my part to suggest that that is one of the best five-game stretches any quarterback has ever had in NFL history, and he's doing it when the Bengals need it to get to the playoffs and now to advance in the playoffs. So it's amazing that this guy in his second NFL season is performing the way that he is. 4,600 yards regular season, 34 touchdowns, 14 interceptions. And the critics criticized the Bengals when instead of drafting Sewell from Oregon at tackle, they drafted Jamar Chase, who was Burrow's teammate at LSU. I don't think anybody's criticizing the Bengals now, do you? I don't, and I was one of those morons that thought that they should have taken Tanae Sewell with a fifth pick in the draft instead of Jamar Chase. But what I have learned through this season, Howard, is that the value of a transcendent wide receiver is simply greater than the value of one great offensive lineman. You can't have a bad offensive line. That goes without saying. But if you get a change, a game-changing wide receiver, one of the best in the NFL, which Jamar Chase already is, the impact on the offense is so incredible that uh, that I've learned that if you can get that guy, you got to try to get him. 81 catches, 1,455 yards, 13 touchdowns, an 18-yard per catch average. That's absurd. Nobody has that. <laughs> it's very unusual, particularly for a rookie. Uh, I, I think if you look back in recent NFL history, and by recent, I mean the last 20 or 25 years, only Randy Moss has had a rookie season to compare to Jamar Chase. Now, Viking fans will say that Justin Jefferson was that good last year, and I suppose he probably should be in the uh, discussion as well. But Jamar Chase has been amazing. And the thing that, that really stands out in recent weeks is that he really has not been wide open and it doesn't matter. I mean, even when the coverage is great, his connection with Joe Burrow is so good. Their relationship is so good and their chemistry is so good that Joe will just put it in a tiny window where only Jamar can get his hands on the ball and he is making the catch. Every Batman needs a Robin, and uh, Chase has got one. And T. Higgins, who had a pretty strong year, over 1,000 yards and six touchdowns. And then you factor in Joe Mixon, running the ball with over 1,200 yards, so the offense is cooking. Let me add two more names, Howard. Tyler Boyd is one of the better slot receivers in the NFL. He's had two 1,000-yard seasons in the past. He didn't get there this year, but he almost had 900 yards. And you also have a very productive tight end in C.J. Uzama, who had five touchdown catches during the regular season and a touchdown catch in their playoff win over the Raiders. So... I think the Bengals have as much skill position talent as any team in the NFL. You've got three excellent wide receivers, a very good tight end, one of the top five running backs in the NFL. 
What you don't have is an elite offensive line. I think the Bengals are probably league average, maybe a tiny bit below that, but it really doesn't matter when your quarterback is that good and he has that many weapons. As long as he can get the ball out of his hand before the rush arrives, uh, the Bengals are a very difficult team to stop. Let me go back to, to last week against the Raiders. When you look over certain categories, the Raiders won most yards, uh, most rushing yards, more passing yards. They won every category except the critical ones, turnovers. They had two. Uh, and obviously we talked about Joe Burrow. Uh, I, I thought that the, that the Bengals uh, were going to win that game. That was my thought when I was looking over all the – I never thought that the Dallas Cowboys would be the only home team to lose last weekend. That's amazing, isn't it? It's been interesting throughout this season, I think, road teams, if they didn't have a winning record overall in the NFL this year, it was very close. It was very close to being 50-50. But I thought, at least in Cincinnati's case, being the home team last week made a big difference. They had the biggest crowd they've ever had at Paul Brown Stadium, which has been in existence for 22 years. Uh, The noise level was off the charts. My ears are still ringing. Uh, The Raiders had several pre-snap penalties. The play clock often got down to less than five seconds before they could snap the ball, and I thought the the crowd had an impact on that game. Was it 31 years since the Bengals won a playoff game? 31 years and nine days, but who's counting? (laughs) You know, I remember when Marvin Lewis was coaching the Bengals, and and if I, during my, uh, my, my time of calling NFL games for CBS, I had, uh, you know, the Bengals were an attractive team. Uh, they were explosive. And I remember uh, when he went through that stretch where he had won, he had been to the playoffs like eight straight times and no playoff wins to show for it. Uh, I just, uh, and I guess, you know, the coach is always the one that winds up paying the price, but he had a couple of screwballs uh, with Chad Johnson and was it, uh, he had uh, uh, Terrell Dave, uh, not Terrell, he had, um, oh my goodness, Wide receiver. Well, you may be thinking of Terrell Owens. Terrell Owens. Uh, he was with yeah. He was with Cincinnati for one year, and that was not a playoff team. Uh, but the Bengals did have some guys during the Marvin era that had combustible personalities, and unfortunately, that cost them in some playoff games. Most memorably, 2015 against the Steelers, when Vontez Perfect and Adam Jones had back-to-back 15-yard penalties at the end of the game. It turned what would have been a very difficult field goal to win the game into a chip shot for the Steelers, and that was the last of Marvin's seven playoff losses in Cincinnati. And the, the following year, I'm down on the field before the game, and I went over to Marvin Lewis and got to talking with him, and Davis and, uh, I mean, Owens and, and uh, Ocho Cinco were gone. And I said, what's the difference between this year's team and last year's team? And I said, and he, st- he thought for a minute, and I said, well, how about if I tell you what I think? He goes, go ahead. It's who's not here. He goes, okay. <laughs> he, did, he didn't respond. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I will defend Chad Johnson. Chad obviously had an uh, oversized personality, and I know he was maybe somewhat polarizing around the country because, you know, a lot of the attention he directed at himself. But I never really looked at him as a guy that, that hurt the team. Uh, I think most of his stuff was good-natured, and he was obviously a phenomenal player. So some of the other guys I mentioned caused problems and, and headaches for Marvin and the coaching staff. But by and large, I don't really put Chad Johnson and or Ocho Cinco, whichever last name you want to use, into that conversation. I think for the most part, uh, Chad was a really good guy who just uh, needed to be loved and, and found a way to do it. Uh, this week, Tennessee Titans, top seed. They've had a week off, obviously, and so now you go into Tennessee and play a team that may have Derrick Henry back and ready to play, Uh, and he hasn't been played since October. And because of that factor, I thought what Mike Vrabel did has been astounding to the point where I think he's coach of the year. It's either Mike Vrabel or Zach Taylor in the AFC. I think the two best candidates for coach of the year are squaring off in this playoff game in Nashville. I do think Derrick Henry will be back. All signs point to him returning. I talked to a couple of Tennessee reporters this week, and they said he could have played last week if the Titans have had to, had had to play on a Super Wild Card weekend. So the King will be back. The question is, how much will he get the ball? 
Is he going to be on a so-called pitch count since he hasn't played since Halloween and carry it 15 times instead of 25? Uh, that might be the case, but the Titans have a three-headed monster now. That I guess the good news from Tennessee's perspective is that over the course of the last two months, Deontay Foreman and Dontrell Hilliard have been almost as good as Derrick Henry, which seems ridiculous to say, uh, but Deontay Foreman, who is very similar physically to Derrick Henry, he's a 235-pound guy instead of 249. He's averaging the same yards per carry as uh, Derrick Henry did before he got hurt, and Dontrell Hilliard's average is even better. So whether Henry carries it 25 times or 15 times, you know the Titans are going to uh, try to dominate the game in the run uh, with the run, and I think that's the biggest question mark going in for Cincinnati. He is the voice of the Bengals, Dan Horde. Uh, you know, when, when you, and you know this, Dan, you, there's two kinds of shape. You're either in great physical shape or you're in great football shape, and one has to do with the other. So the question will be, is Derrick Henry in great football shape? That is the question. Uh, I will say this, though. If you go on YouTube and look up Derrick Henry workouts, <laughs> there's probably nobody who's more physically fit in the National Football League than that guy. This is a stat that I've been telling Bengals fans this week, and uh, every time I share it, it seems like their eyeballs get really big. Jamar Chase had a touchdown catch a few weeks ago against Kansas City, where he caught the ball about 10 yards downfield and was seemingly surrounded by five or six members of the Kansas City defense, and he just pulled away for a 72-yard touchdown like he was secretariat at the Belmont. In, on that touchdown catch, Jamar Chase hit 21.7 miles an hour, according to the GPS device that these guys wear now. Derrick Henry had a touchdown run this year where he hit 21.8 miles an hour. So Derrick Henry, at 249 pounds, hmm. hit a higher speed carrying the football than Jamar Chase did on a run where he pulled away from the entire Kansas City defense. So that is the physical freak of nature that the Bengals are going to have to try to stop on Saturday. You mentioned Secretariat in the Belmont. Uh, I was there that day in 1973. Wow. A friend of mine said, oh my gosh. Yeah, a friend of mine calls me and says, hey, you want to go to Belmont? <clears throat> I said, why? He goes, well, Secretariat's going for the Triple Crown. Uh, we, we might see history. And I said, okay, you know, so let's go. And I'm watching this race and saying, what, didn't the other horses get the word that the race was starting? I mean, he won, he won, he won by 17 lengths. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, well, you know, I, I remember talking to the late William Knack, the great horse racing writer who wrote about horse racing for Sports Illustrated for many years. I think he's passed away. Uh, but as far as I know, until talking to you today, he was the only person I've ever met that saw Secretariat win the Belmont. So it's really cool for me to hear that you were there. No, it's, uh, look, somebody said to me, who's the greatest athlete you've ever seen? I said, Secretariat. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what they found out? Yeah, that, that's he, really neat. Yeah, he had an enlarged heart. That was That's how they attributed his success, which seems kind of interesting to me. I mean, I, I don't know that kind of stuff, but that's what's, that there was, a, I don't know if you saw the movie on him, but... Uh, yeah, that came out in that movie. Anyway, let's get back to where you belong this weekend, and that's calling uh, Cincinnati and Tennessee. You're looking at Tennessee, and they're kind of screwy from this sense. The end of the year, they lose to to uh, to uh, Houston. All right, well, maybe they just were resting their players. Who knows? Uh, before that, they had blown out the Dolphins. They had beaten the 49ers, and they had lost to the Steelers. So it's hard to put your finger on who the Tennessee Titans really are. When you look at those games, though, it's much easier to understand because the thing that happened in all of their losses against not very good teams, they also lost to the Jets early this year, right. is that they turned it over. They turned it over a ton in all of those games. So if you look at the Pittsburgh game specifically, just as a good example, Tennessee ran for more than 200 yards in that game. It's hard to lose in the NFL when you run for 200-plus, I think, off the top of my head, the turnovers were 4 nothing. Tennessee, obviously, uh, the team with four. So that's what's happened when they've lost. They've beaten most of the good teams in the NFL this year when they've controlled the ball. They've lost to some lousy ones when they've coughed it up. So 
that'll be a key. The Bengals have not committed a turnover in their last five games. Uh, Joe Burrow was leading the league in interceptions, and then he stopped throwing them, and <laughs> he no longer leads anymore. Ryan Tannehill not only has 14 picks, he's fumbled 10 times this year. Uh, four of those were lost to the other team. So I think that if you're looking for one stat that's going to swing the game, I think that's probably it. Yeah, I uh, I would agree. Um, look, Tannehill's he's not one of the best quarterbacks in the league, but by the same token, when he was in Miami, uh, you would think they were going to probably try to get rid of him. So his career has been rejuvenated since his appearance in Tennessee. Tennessee has used him perfectly for his strengths. He's not one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL, but he's certainly not terrible. And if you give him a great running game where he can drive and play action and also get out of the pocket, use his running ability, keep in mind he was a great wide receiver at Texas A&M before he played quarterback, then you can maximize his talents. And I think Tennessee has done a really good job of that. It's interesting in this matchup, Bengals head coach Zach Taylor was with Ryan Tannehill at Texas A&M, hmm. and he was with him as his quarterback's coach with the Miami Dolphins. They were together for eight years. So Zach Taylor knows Ryan Tannehill's strengths and weaknesses as well as anybody. The Bengals hosted Tennessee last year at Paul Brown Stadium. The Bengals were a big underdog in that game. Cincinnati won. So it's a small sample size, but maybe Zach Taylor's insight into what Ryan Tannehill does best and what he doesn't do nearly as well will pay dividends for the Bengals on Saturday. Dan Hoare, the voice of the Bengals. So let's take the final four in the AFC. Tennessee, Cincinnati, Buffalo, and Kansas City. If, uh, and Tennessee is the number one seed, obviously. If you had to reseed those four, who would be number one? I would say Buffalo, not only based on how they played against New England, but how I felt about them all season. The fact that they sputtered at times this year has really surprised me because going into the year, I thought the Bills would be the team to beat in the AFC. And for whatever reason, maybe it just took them a while, but they certainly looked like the team to beat last week by just absolutely throttling uh, New England. Having said that, if they, uh, you know, well, it's not if, uh, this week they've got to go on the road to Kansas City, and Kansas City's been to the Super Bowl each of the last two years, so that might swing that game in Kansas City's favor. But I would, I would uh, handicap them at Buffalo first, Kansas City second, and then, to me, the Bengals-Tennessee game, it's a toss-up. I, I, I really can't favor one or the other. I, I expect it to be a nail-biter in I, that game in Nashville. I think the odds-makers would agree with you. Uh, Tennessee's a three-and-a-half-point favorite. I mean, usually you get three points for the home field. So let, let's just say it's a pick-em game. Uh, and, yeah. you know, and, the, and I always had – Matt Mellon was my partner on, on Monday Night Football on CBS, and he always said the same thing. Don't beat yourself. Dallas did that last week with 14 turnout with 14 penalties uh, and sloppy play and a screwball decision by Dak Prescott at the end. But you can't beat yourself. So the team that makes the fewest mistakes generally comes out ahead. That's it. And if you look at the Bengals Raiders game last week, Cincinnati had zero turnovers. Yep. The Raiders had two. The Bengals had fewer penalties, certainly fewer costly penalties. Uh, so you're right. Uh, once you get to playoff time, more often than not, that makes the difference. Which team makes just enough critical mistakes to cost themselves the game? In the NFC, got Green Bay that is uh, justified to be the number one seed, uh, and they play the 49ers. Uh, I, I'm going to say that the, that the Green Bay that should they should win this game, but you never know. But on the the uh, Tampa Rams game. I don't know. A lot of people are saying, well, this is going to be a win for Tom Brady and the Bucks." I'm not so sure. I think what you saw from Matthew Stafford last week and, you know, uh, and Cooper Cup, what, what he's able to do. And now you got Odell Beckham Jr., a meaningful part of their offense. I think that game's going to be closer than people think. I think it's going to be a great game. I think Sean McVay is one of the best coaches in the NFL and not that Bruce Arians isn't. He's won a Super Bowl title last year. Uh, but the Rams seem to be ascending right now. It's interesting with the Patriots. Or Patriots, I said that because of Brady. It's interesting with the Bucks that you just assume because of Brady and Gronk and you know some of the great veterans that they have on that team, that getting back to what we were just talking about, they're not going to screw it up. You're going to have to play great 
to beat the Bucks in the postseason, and I do think the Rams are, are capable of doing that. Uh, would you say that the Bucks are the villains in the NFL? Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, it's not that people necessarily dislike them. I just think that maybe there are a lot of people that are tired of seeing Brady win all the time. Yeah. And it's not that they dislike him. It's just after a while, it's like, okay, let's uh, let's spread the wealth a little bit. Let's see somebody else get one of those rings. So I, I think we all respect the incredible career that he's had, but uh, variety is the spice of life, right? Well, the interesting thing to me is, um, uh, you know, getting back to Buffalo and Kansas City, that's the first time in history that two quarterbacks playing in a game, their previous game, they each threw five touchdown passes. It's never happened before. Wow. Yeah, I mean, both of those guys are amazing. And uh, as the voice of the Bengals, I'm feeling pretty good about the fact that Joe Burrow is, if he's not in their same realm yet, he's getting there pretty quickly. I think Joe Burrow is kind of uh, just hit the tip of the iceberg of what he's going to be as an NFL quarterback. And considering he didn't even have a full season under his belt before this year, that uh, makes for pretty exciting times here in Cincinnati. I think, isn't Burrow the first guy uh, to throw five touchdown passes as a Bengal since Boomer Esiason? Uh, Andy Dalton had a five-touchdown oh, game okay. against the Jets early in his career. Uh, Carson Palmer threw six in a game, which oh, is the Bengals' okay. all-time record. Uh, Joe Burrow has not hit that yet, but give him time, he will. <laughs> no, I, I, I tease Boomer because we worked together doing so. He did some games with us, uh, and uh, he's. Um, uh, I always like to poke him a little bit. And I spoke to him the other day, and I said, so what do you think of your Bengals? He goes, I'm behind him. I think they're going to win. I said, okay. You want to bet? He goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the thing about Joe Burrow is that he has that it factor that I don't think the Bengals have had at that position since Boomer size. And Boomer is generally regarded as the greatest leader in franchise history. If Ken Anderson was the best quarterback overall, Boomer had that distinction of just having unbelievable leadership qualities. Uh, he just had that yet, and Joe Burrow definitely has it. And even though he's 25 years old and in his second NFL season, he is definitely in charge of that locker room. Well, Boomer's got great leadership qualities because he never shuts up. <laughs> well, that served him well in his post-football life. I'm <laughs> uh, 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 just poking fun of Boomer. But, I, you know, I, look, I, I got out of the, the forecasting business a long time ago because the worst thing you can do is bet on sports. Uh, because if you do, you're going to wind up living in a tornado box under the highway. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we think we know yeah, sports. I'm with you. I, I, I want to enjoy the games at face value without being nervous about whether I'm going to be broke at the end of it. No, the only thing I care about this weekend, Dan, is is though I haven't the right snacks to watch the games. And what is your snack of choice? Well, it's not. It's like my, my wife and I, uh, we're into chips and dip. Uh, we're into, um, yep. uh, I don't know, just, you know, the stuff you can pop in the, in the microwave and then you got little pigs in a blanket and stuff like that. And of course, the obligatory. That sounds good. Yeah, the obligatory bottle of wine. <laughs> I like it. Well, I'm, I'm more of a craft beer man myself, but that's okay to each his own. Uh, but uh, yeah, salty snacks and NFL playoff action. Does life get any better than that? Right. I say no. Let me ask you this final thing The Bengals win the game against Tennessee if what? If they do a reasonably good job of shutting down the Titans game, our Titans running game, and by that, I don't expect them to hold Tennessee to 70 yards. I just don't think they can't allow Tennessee to run for 150 plus. So hold Tennessee to more in that 100 to 120 rushing yard type of window, and then don't turn it over. I don't think the Bengals can cough up the ball and go on the road and beat Tennessee. So they got to play a clean game offensively and do a reasonably good job of controlling Derrick Henry in the running game. If they do those two things, Cincinnati can advance to the AFC Championship game for the first time since 1988. Can they put enough pressure on Tannehill? 
Yeah, now that's hard to do because you have to respect the run so much that you can't tee off on him uh, as much as you do against other quarterbacks. But if you do control the running game somewhat and get Tennessee into some third and longs, and also it'd be great to take the lead so Tennessee has to throw it a little bit more, then yes, then uh, get some pressure on Tannehill, maybe force him into a couple of bad throws and see if you can come up with a couple of takeaways as a result. Well, you mentioned the AFC Championship game, so the winner of Bengals-Titans gets the privilege of playing the winner of Buffalo-Kansas City, Uh, and there's not an easy out in either one of those games. That is for sure. Now, I grew up in Jamestown, New York, a little bit south of Buffalo, so it would be a a thrill for me to see a Bengals-Bills AFC Championship game in Buffalo. Uh, but, uh, shoot, as the uh, Bengals announcer, I, I really don't care at this point where they go and who they face. Uh, this team is ahead of schedule, and if they make it to the AFC Championship game in Joe Burrow's second season, that would be a phenomenal achievement. You poke my memory because I remember when I was calling Jets football, um, working with the late Dave Jennings, and we're in Denver in 1998 playing the, uh, John Elway and the Broncos, and the Jets had a 10 nothing lead at halftime. And so Dave and I were talking, and Dave said, boy, we're 30 minutes away from going to the Super Bowl. Well, at that time, I was not only doing the Jets, but I was doing uh, Monday Night Football for CBS Radio. So I was going to do the Super Bowl either way, but in my heart, I wanted to do it uh, broadcasting the Jets game because, I mean, I had done it all year. So I had a horse in the race, and unfortunately, they turned it over in the second half a little bit too much, and Elway and company took care of business. That, you know, as a team-employed radio broadcaster, there's nothing more exciting to think about than having a chance to call your team in a Super Bowl. So that hasn't happened for me yet. I don't know if it ever will. But with Joe Burrow at quarterback, you certainly have the feeling that it's now a realistic possibility. Well, you can't be a good team in the NFL without a good quarterback. That's obvious, and the Bengals have one. That is correct. They've had some good ones in the past, but I'm not sure that they've had one as good as as this young guy since uh, Boomer and Kenny Anderson, the two previous quarterbacks to lead the Bengals to a Super Bowl. And oh, by the way, Jamar Chase. (laughs) And Jamar Chase. And T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd and Joe Mixon and T.J. Uzama. It's an embarrassment of riches on offense. Well, enjoy the game uh, this weekend. Was it Saturday at 4.30 Eastern Time? Uh, Look forward to seeing it. Uh, Have a good call. Stay safe. Thanks again. My pleasure, Howard. Thank you. Dan Horde, the radio voice of the Cincinnati Bengals. I think it's anybody's game, Cincinnati and Tennessee. I really do. I think it's anybody's game in Buffalo, Kansas City. I don't think it's anybody's game in, in Green Bay, San Francisco. I think the Packers win going away. And... The Bucks and the Rams, I think the Rams are going to be a, a more of a problem for Tampa Bay than most people think. But I'm not getting in the prediction business. I'm just looking forward to the weekend. It should be a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy it. Most importantly, stay safe. Thanks for being a part of Howard David Live.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.